0: What happened on a progress, and what did Queen Elizabeth do on a progress? Who came with her? Uh, What were the political and social purposes of progress? It's not all parties, you're going to see. And why did she come to East Anglia in 1578? What sort of welcome did Norwich provide her? Who wrote the script for the events? Who were the great and the humble who greeted their monarch? Now from the viewpoint of Norwich uh, as host, the event has usually been seen in isolation and as uh, a, an exceptional occasion. But perhaps we need to place it in the context of the other feasts, festivities, and visits uh, that were regular features of the life of the city in this period. We may end we may end here with you thinking as you walk out that you're being shortchanged because there was a lot more partying going on. Uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries, than you're getting access to at the moment, but we'll see. Um, 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 and certainly, I, uh, in the second le- of the two lectures, and I'm pairing these up in various ways, and I will refer forward occasionally to the second lecture. Uh, you will see how part, how Norwich was a party city. Now. I do feel as if I've been set up by the organiser of this, not by these two people, but by Sarah, my former student, who seems to organise lots of things, like uh, one of those Sunday night thrillers on BBC One, though possibly without uh, uh, all the uh, unlikely twists that you get in their plots. I say this because to keep you watching, the BBC runs the second episode on Monday evenings. Well, what I have to say about Queen Elizabeth's progress is does indeed come in two parts. Today, I'm going to concentrate on what is likely to have been familiar and what um, uh, was a venture into the unknown when Elizabeth travelled into East Anglia in, 19, in 1578. Now, in the second talk uh, in September, uh, as Chris mentioned, I will focus on the partying and what's called the performative side of the progress, and especially the entertainments in Norwich. In that lecture, I will analyse the events in Norwich in detail and offer some some suggestions about what it all meant. Uh, What messages may have been buried in the event that are not immediately obvious to us today. I'll also offer some suggestions about how Elizabeth's presence in Norwich relates to the elaborate annual civic festivities at a time when they themselves were undergoing uh, substantial change. That's all new stuff. Um, so for those of you who may have come today kitting out with your dancing shoes and waiting for the disco lights to start flashing, uh, well, I hope you can contain your excitement until the next time we meet, if you come along. To. And although uh even then the party will also have si- be seen to have serious purposes. Unlike, dare I say, with our present prime minister and his two holidays in the summer, Elizabeth was engaging in serious state business when she was on her summer peregrinations. Um, However, today, I want to, um, um, I want to concentrate on the more obviously serious uh, purposes that lay behind the many summer outings that constituted the progress across Elizabeth's reign. And I want to argue that those purposes embody both deeply embedded social and cultural values and practices such as petitioning, patron-client relationships, and gift exchange. But on each occasion of an individual progress that they often had, uh, they were also responses through much more immediate circumstances. I'll say a little bit about all of those things at various points. Certainly Elizabeth took them seriously. During the 44 years of her reign, between 1558 and 1603, she visited over 400 individuals and civic hosts. Now, royal progresses have received a lot of attention over the years, but I hope that I will be able to add some new insights to what we know by looking at them again, uh, not least by looking at them in the context provided by East Anglia in general, and Norwich in particular, in 1578 with very particular circumstances political and social uh, of that year. Now in the second lecture i also try and identify any evidence that may survive today in knowledge of the six days of a stay within the city and in fact uh, I hope to send you out after that lecture looking for these things that you may not have realised are hangovers today from that 1578 visit. Now, but before we start out on today's journey, it may be helpful to clarify certain things about the nature of monarchy uh, uh, um, and what might be described as Elizabeth's queenship. Now, I wonder if anyone would like to suggest uh, what monarchs in general might do. This is the point of lecture when you sort of lectures, when you ask students, they all hide their faces. (laughs) So you're much older, you're much braver. Have you anything to offer? What do monarchs do? Nothing, sorry. Make <laughs> law that must make Meet ministers. Meet ministers. Yeah. Today or other days, other times. Yeah. Any other suggestions? Okay. Make judgments. Make judgments, right? Okay. Those implies legal things, international affairs, mostly. Give presents to people. <laughs> Thank you, and, and money and large assets. There not. There's someone who knows about largesse. You don't listen to, need to listen to the last part of the lectures. Okay, you've got it there, that's right, okay. Yeah, monarchs, we can see over time, do a variety of things. Um, um, but I think essentially we can say that at any time they're likely to do um, three, one or more of three things. And they can rule, um, uh, and so we need to say that they can reign, They can rule and they can govern. Now, in the case of Henry VII, he did all three, even to the extent of keeping part of the state's income in coffers in his private chambers, if not quite under his bed. But his son's uh, accession in 1509, when Henry VIII comes to the throne, changed all that. Henry VIII did not like doing the paperwork. Uh, not uh, when there were jousts in which to participate and Green's Leaves to be composed. And as a consequence, the Privy Council and the King in Chief Secretary effectively took over the business of day-to-day government. Thomas Cromwell just loved doing the paperwork, as did his successors under Elizabeth, William, and then Robert Cecil. But no one, of course, would argue that Henry VIII did not continue to rule Uh, to determine policy and to decide who was in and who was out. The dissolution and a succession of six wives amply demonstrate this. And it was this model of monarchy uh, that was inherited by Elizabeth, uh, a monarch who both reigned and ruled, but who largely left governance to her ministers. Certainly, um, there was a model of Elizabethan monarchy that was perpetuated visually in the 17th century, which she's shown as here uh, with her ministers and her two chief ministers Burley, who knew how to handle the finances. And over here you've got Sir Francis Walsingham, who is effectively the head of the Elizabethan CIA. And as you will see at various times, she le- needed a CIA as well. Um, that Elizabeth continued both to reign and to rule, as I say, is evident in the matter of the progresses themselves there is ample evidence that her ministers did not like progresses. Uh, they were expensive, that upset Burley a lot, uh, and constant movement made it that much more difficult to administer the kingdom and to conduct international affairs. So while they're prancing around in East Anglia at this time, there's an international crisis going on across the North Sea in the Low Countries, and Burley... And Warsingham in particular, Warsingham at one point has to go off to the local country to try and sort it out, do or sort out in the position in that respect. So, you know, it's really difficult to do international diplomacy without Zoom. And so, um, you know, she she was in a bad way. Um, um, and also, more generally, um this all these this, this traveling was occurring in a period when there were an escalating volume of administration to be done. Uh, and as increasingly the central state attempted to micromanage both the economy and society as a whole. So, if she's investing all this time and energy in and money, uh, as much as other people's money as possible, but hers as well, in progresses, then one has to ask why were they so important to her? Uh, And of course, it it is a period is characterized by the government's intense anxiety about England's precarious standing in the shifting kaleidoscope that was the continent-wide balance of power. For effectively from the point in 1570, when the Pope declared Elizabeth a heretic and called for her removal, there was an Elizabethan Cold War going on. And at times uh, it hotted up. And of course, we usually recall the Armada of 1588 But in fact, three armadas actually sailed the last in 1596. Early warning systems were put in place, and during the summer months, pinnaces were picketing the channel approaches to keep an eye out for approaching Spanish galleons. Um, And here in Norfolk, actually, the county was on the front line, uh, threatened as it was by Habsburg forces just across the North Sea in the Low Countries. And if you are unlucky, you would spend the summer guarding Wayborn Hope and its deep water landing on manning the beacon system, uh, the early warning system across the county. But all this is a story for another occasion. I mustn't get into war preparations too much. Yet against this background, against this background of anxiety all the time, Elizabeth insisted upon her progresses. And in doing so, she both demonstrated that it was she who ruled and that she saw the progresses as an integral part of that process of ruling. In fact, it is evident that she saw progress as one of the ways of responding to the challenges faced by both her and her state. Not least, to use the contemporary term, they showed her fault to her subjects and generated a connection with them. It elicited displays of loyalty and helped to generate uh, that psychological resistance in the population upon which resistance to internal subversion and foreign invasion uh, depended. I think probably the modern uh, equivalent of Elizabeth's progresses would be President Zelensky's nightly TV broadcasts and the sense of Ukrainian identity that it helps to sustain. But what Elizabeth imparted, Uh, But while Elizabeth imparted a distinctive character to her progresses and they occurred against a specific background of internal and external circumstances, they also represented the continuation of a long-standing tradition amongst monarchs in England. And what those who I think looked at Elizabeth's progresses from the viewpoint of contemporaneous drama or literature, which is where a lot of the work on progress has been done, uh, they seem not to have noticed is that they stood in a longer tradition Of what one might describe as peripatetic monarchy. Uh, It's a tradition of course that continues even today with children waving flags and presenting poses to royals on tour but in a world in which monarchs may continue to reign but of course have long since ceased to rule. Now a quick glance at earlier forms of peripatetic monarchy may help to provide a perspective on it on its Elizabethan incarnation and help us to explain why it forms such an intense and central part of Elizabeth's reign. Almost all medieval monarchs had been peripatetic. In part this was because they were monarchs of lords of, and lords of more than one what we call polity um, and often busy trying to conquer additions to their domains. So contrary to the history curriculum consists. Uh, um, consisting of our so-called Ireland story and imposed upon schools by Michael Gove when he was Secretary of State for Education, ours was never uh, a a tale of isolated disengagement. For example, the Angevins ruled a composite monarchy that included, yes, the Kingdom of England and Lordship of Ireland, uh, but also on the continent territories in what we now think of as France that exceeded in territorial space Uh, the territories of the King of France hold up as he was in the Île de France. As a consequence um, uh, of Henry II's continental engagements, uh, he was absent from England and in France on at least 13 occasions and in Ireland once. He spent only 37% of his reign in England, 43% in Normandy and 20% elsewhere in France. Henry was a king constantly on the move, usually with an army trailing behind him. But as these figures suggest, he was mainly on the move outside England. By the way, way of contrast, Elizabeth never left England. For by the time that Henry VIII uh, seized, uh, as Henry VII seized the throne in 1485, the opportunities for prancing around on the continent had been severely curtailed. In other words, they lost the French lands. Uh, but both he and his son Henry VIII did use progresses within England in order to impose their presence on recalcitrant areas of kingdom, especially in the north. This again contrasts um, with Elizabeth's strategy. She was a queen who never ventured beyond the Watford Gap, um, which is a you know it's still used as a an important channel through which various ways pass, and the phrase is a good one. She never ventured beyond the Watford Gap, and it's a it's a it's a, it's a break in the limestone ridge and these routes ch- use them. Instead, she continued to travel uh, to the most heavily populated and agriculturally and industrially productive parts of her kingdom in the south. Uh, this being the case, there was all the more reason for her to visit East Anglia, which was at this time, with the exception of London, uh, uh, it, it exceeded all other parts of the kingdom in terms of not only of its agriculture, but also its industrial productivity. East Anglia is an industrial area uh, in the late 16th century. Norwich was the second city uh, in the kingdom. Its walls encompassing an area greater than that of the city of London. The industries of Norwich and the industries in the surrounding countryside were integrated into a wider international economy. Uh, in this context, it's part of one of two of the most industrially developed and economically important areas uh, of Europe, one being Lombardy, Italy, and the other being around the Baltic and the North Sea. Norfolk and Norwich is far more integrated into that in the late 16th century than it is into any wider uh, English economy. And across the sea, Amsterdam uh, was closer to hand than was London by land. Again, I'll return to the possible consequences of these festivities in Norwich, of these connections uh, with the Low Countries, uh, in in what I've got to say, uh, in September. Um, And if you want to see for yourself the economic powerhouse of your kingdom, a visit to Norfolk and Norwich was a must. And of course, it was not only Elizabeth, but also her ministers uh, and courtiers, who were likely to have their eyes opened by what they saw. And in this respect, Elizabeth's progress is only one way in which the central government gained a better understanding of the kingdom they administered. Another was the unprecedentedly detailed maps of the counties surveyed by Christopher Saxton uh, and sponsored um, uh, by government ministers. They wanted to know what they were ruling because they often had never been to the places that they ruled. Uh, And the first of these, of course, had been a map of Norfolk first published uh, in 1574. And we know that William Cecil uh, had a composite atlas suited to uh, fitting in a, tra- in a, in a saddlebag. Uh, and you can see, still see the creases in the maps today, uh, uh, and which is now in Burley House. And he's like, very likely to have then a copy of Saxon's printed map of Norfolk with him when he set out for, the, for uh, East Anglia in 1578. And when combined with progresses and maps, uh, with progresses, Maps provided a new type of understanding of the kingdom for both the queen and the minister. So I think one needs to link those two things together, the maps and the progresses. Now, there's also, uh, sorry I should have shown you that, and I think quite interestingly um, the so-called Ditchley portrait of 1572 um, is, it, 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 the 1572, uh, is with Elizabeth's feet on the south of England, I think owe something, although no one has said this before, I think, to this notion of her progressing around that area of, of the country. Now, the second main reason why late medieval kings went on their travels was religious. Um, Along with their subjects, medieval monarchs were were locked into religious beliefs, uh, uh, central to which was a belief in purgatory and the possibility of intercession on the part of the saints. Um, uh, Out of this arose the practice of pilgrimage uh, in which the sufferings endured as a result of traveling was part of the purgation on earth that helped to purchase paradise and I should say that purgatory was not a fun place to be. Um, this is a sort of illustration of 1500 or so. Uh, and it, they're, not, they're not in hell being burnt. They're in purgatory and being singed. And they probably done their time because an angel's come kind of along to pick them out and take them off to heaven at last. But recent work has shown that ordinary people often traveled only short distances to local saints. But when monarchs sought intercession, um, they headed for the big time shrines. Here in Norfolk, uh, we had two such sites. The Holy House uh, promoted the cult of the Virgin at Walsingham and the House of Cluniac monks at Bromholm near Bacton, which had claimed a portion of the true cross. Henry III, for example, would have visited Bromholm in 1223, took its salving waters and dedicated himself to its relics. And when Henry VIII and Catherine the Raridon failed to produce male heirs, they trooped off to Walsingham in order to seek intervention by the Virgin on their behalf, to no good effect. Later in his reign, still in pursuit of male heirs and by then also of Anne Boleyn, Henry brought an end to the religious houses and under his son Edward VI, there was a definitive change in theology uh, in which the Calvinist notion of predestination replaced the late medieval belief in purgatory therefore elizabeth inherited a kingdom riven by doctrinal and various other forms of religious division and we need to be careful because in a sense one of the problems for us is looking back is that we it all seems fixed and certain we can see the outcome. But I think anyone in the 1560s and 1570s, given the external circumstances and the evidence of what already has happened during the course of the 16th century uh, with change and change again in religion, I think that they would have found it a very unstable and uncertain circumstance. Um, Elizabeth strove not, as she put it, to look into men's souls. In other words, if you behave yourself, I'm not going to que- question very closely what it is you actually believe. Uh, um, but international politics came to intersect with religious beliefs after the papal bull, as I, met, as I mentioned earlier, the 1570 uh, regnance in Excelsis, and excommunicating her and those who served her, absolving her subjects from their allegiance. So clearly, these religious differences were. In effect, going, if, you, if allowed to do so, we're going to subvert the Elizabethan state. Um, the ball came a year after the Northern Rebellion uh, of 1569, when largely Catholic nobles had attempted to depose her and replace her with the Catholic queen, Mary, Queen of Scots. And in this context, uh, the royal progresses came to have a role. On the one hand, Elizabeth made the point during progresses of gracing with her presence individuals such as Edward Rokewood of Euston in Suffolk, uh, who she visited in 1578. Though he was a committed Catholic, he remained or appeared to remain loyal to the Crown. I say appeared to remain loyal and conforming <laughs> until, of course, Elizabeth was about to leave Euston to travel from Northland, and a statue of the Virgin was found in a barn. It was burnt. And Rokewood was summoned to appear before the Privy Council when it convened in Norwich a few days later. Um, I think it was a set-up job. I think it's a set-up job. That was done deliberately by the opponents of Catholics in order to push Elizabeth in a particular direction. A similar attempt by Elizabeth to encompass conforming Catholics was manifested when she, followed, uh, uh, following her stay in Norwich, she visited, visited the grand house uh, built by Sir Henry Jerningham at Cossey on lands acquired in 1547. Um, he and his wife had served in the household of Catherine of Aragon and later held office under Queen Mary uh, and was one of the six assistant executors of her will. So she's she's tightly locked in uh, uh, to the Marian Catholic regime. Um, Now, Sir Henry had died himself, had died in 1572, but his son had inherited the house and it was he that Elizabeth visited. So she's trying to encompass all these religious groups. And one of the executors of Sir Henry Uh, Jerningham's will was Sir Henry Beddingfield uh, of Oxford. Um, uh, And even more pointed, I think, in 1578 uh, must have been the reversal of the situation as between Elizabeth and a number of Norfolk's leading gentry, including Sir Henry at Oxford. The Beddingfields were and continue to be a staunchly Catholic family. Under Elizabeth's sister, Queen Mary, the family's then-head, Sir Henry Beddingfield, uh, who died in 1583, had held important offices. Having been a Privy Councillor under Edward VI, he continued in his office under Queen Mary, uh, also becoming Lieutenant of the Tower of London in 1557. He was granted two uh, important positions in Mary's household as Vice Chamberlain of the Household and Captain of the Guard. And in 1554, Following Wyatt's Protestant rebellion against Mary, uh, which was abortive, um, uh, Elizabeth had been imprisoned for a year at Woodstock under suspicion of involvement. And rising from his offices and Mary's trust in him, it was Sir Henry who had been appointed her jailer at Woodstock. So we now have a queen visiting Norfolk where the, one of the gentry and many of his associates often married into the same families, I might say, um, one of his uh, had been her jail a few years earlier. A rather pointed set of circumstances. Now, uh, Sir Henry was among the leading East Anglian uh, gentry, along with Rokewood and Jerningham, uh, who had risen. Uh, to support Queen Mary, uh, then based at Kenninghall, so again, East Anglian Connection, uh, when she was, uh, uh, when her succession had been challenged at the start of her reign in July uh, 1553. So these guys are all mightily tied in with the Catholic Marian regime, former regime. all of this backstory, if we can call it that, would have been in the minds of the queen of courtiers and of the local gentry as Elizabeth travelled around East Anglia in the summer of 1578. And the question is a perennial one. How do you deal with political pre, your political predecessors and opponents? Do you do, as Theresa May uh, did, which was to try and placate them and to give them office and the hope that they will be satisfied with that? We, we know what how that worked out. Uh, or do you do what Boris Johnson did and purge all your opponents from the party or, in the 16th century, its equivalents uh, as political parties, such a group don't exist at this time? Uh, and there were those amongst Elizabeth's Elizabeth courtiers uh, 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 and ministers and advisers who favoured the Johnson approach, if we can call it that. Uh, uh, people like um, uh, uh, William Cecil, First Baron Burley. Uh, who, as I say, effectively is Elizabeth's chief minister, and then after a lot of promotion by her, by his father, Robert Cecil, uh, who is his son, who effectively follows on in that role. Uh, there, what were might be what might be called the forward Protestants, such as the Lord Keeper, Sir Nicholas Bacon. Uh, furthermore, this energetic Protestantism uh, was evident not only at court but also in the country. For example, Sir Nicholas had established three sons by his first marriage as country gentlemen in East Anglia. Nicholas at Redgrove, and Sir Nicholas Bacon as now is, he's moved to Ravingdon by now, but he is a lineal descendant uh, of, of Lord Elizabeth's Lord keeper. Uh, Edward at Shrublands, again in Suffolk, and Nathaniel Bacon at Stiffkey on the North Norfolk coast. And amongst, Nathaniel's numerous papers. They are numerous. I have been editing them on and off with others for the last 40 years. Um, uh, Our notes of raids he led on the houses of suspected uh, uh, recusants that is Catholics, they're called represents, searching for evidence of what he described as the trumpery of Pope. Not very nice, that six o'clock hammering on the door and people searching the house. there's a story from the Appleton pastons of Appleton, uh, and they tell it very gleefully about how one of these raids they were Catholics and how one of these raids took place and how they hidden everything and they couldn't find anything. now, which policy was to be followed in handling Catholics and other adherents of the preceding Marian regime, and the extent to which a newly ascendant radical Protestantism was to be indulged was itself part of a yet larger concern of the age. Um, and a concern that was carried into East Anglia in the summer of 1578. Now, another facet of the emerging and uncertain political situation in East Anglia that had to be confronted during the progress in 1578 was the type of local power structure and politics that was emerging as a consequence of what had happened in 1572. For many... Elizabeth's visit must have been painfully revived those memories of that event of six years earlier. And for those of you who do not have long enough memories, let me prompt uh, recollection. In 1572, Elizabeth had sanctioned the execution of England's premier nobleman, Thomas Howard, fourth Duke of Norfolk, uh, for his treasonous dealings with Mary Stuart, Queen uh, Queen of Scots. Uh, This had not only removed an influential player from the arena of court politics, it had also, I suppose you can describe it as, lifted the lid uh, uh, off East Anglia. Now, hitherto, there had been a paradox. Here, in the most industrially and commercially advanced area of England, uh, there had been, until 1572, the last of what I've called the great magnatial countries, These were regions where one great magnate held effective sway. Local matters could hardly be decided without his approval. The Duke of Norfolk had once boasted to Elizabeth that, and I quote, I count myself by your majesty's favour as good a prince at home in my bowling alley uh, in Norwich, just over the road there, down there by the river, as Mary Stuart is, though she were in the midst of Scotland. In other words, this is my country. This is my domain. Locally, power was exercised on his behalf by a retinue of local gentry, many of whom also happened to be Catholics. Uh, some of these were men who have already met in the religious matters previously discussed. The Duke's demise, uh, the losing of his head, also sent his affinity, his followers, into disarray, depriving them of much of their influence. Uh, the palace that he built in the centre of Norwich, stood empty. That's why Duke Street's called Duke Street, because once there was a Renaissance Palace standing on it. It, it wasn't a good place to be, and it actually slipped into the river, a bit like the, um, the, the, the the car park that followed later, which, you know, the last car park, the one that fell in the river. Um, and with the benefit of retrospect, we can see that the new type of politics that was to emerge both in the counties of Norfolk and Suffolk uh, during, uh, um, and in the city of Norwich. But that wasn't clear at the time, I think. In 1578, this was a known unknown, to use the phrase, and no doubt Elizabeth and her ministers carefully probed the local situation during her travels. One occasion for doing this uh, was during her stay in Norwich. On the Wednesday of that stay, and she's here for six days, Elizabeth dined with Philip Howard, the um, rather nervous son of the Duke of Norfolk. I mean, when so many members of your, preceding members of your family have been decapitated by previous monarchs, you had a reason to be nervous. Uh, anyway, Philip Howard, who was a bit of a, he ran away in the end. Um, 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 uh, and where they went, Uh, where she went for that uh, feast um, was um, on St Leonard's Hill. And I can't show you the palace that was there, um, but this man, Henry Howard Earl of Surrey, he also had lost his head, um, had built there a great Italian palace that overlooked Norwich. So not only did you have a Howard palace in the middle of the city, but looming over you, I suppose a bit like prison on mousehold today, although more pretty probably, um, there was this 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 great um renaissance palace. Um and this rather psychophantic Philip Howard, who was very worried about his was anxious to rekindle royal favour. Um and uh he did that by entertaining Elizabeth both Kenninghall, the Howard Centre for what had been the Howard Centre for Ruling Suffolk and Norfolk, effectively on the, on the, county, board, the county borders, uh, and then again at Mount Surrey. Uh, although, as some of his relations complained, he just wasted the money and a lot of it. Um, but later on, Howard and his wife would in 1584 convert to Catholicism. Eventually this led to his imprisonment in the tower where he died and eventually, in 1970, he was made a saint. Um, Now, he had to wait. Um, His grandfather, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, had been executed, I have suggested in 1547, um, uh, for appropriating the royal arms. Um, And I have to say, I think the Howards were never very good at retaining their heads in any sense mm-hmm. uh, 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 in when they were, playing, they were playing in high politics. Um, and here again, once again, religion entwined with politics. You can hardly separate those things out in this period. These then were some of the immediate and pressing political and religious issues uh, that were being played out behind the festivity, uh, festivities uh, that were offered Elizabeth during her visits. And as we see, as we'll see, I hope in the next lecture, they were not entirely lacking from the entertainments themselves. What I'm going to argue, give you taste as it. Were, what I argue there is that what appear to be frivolous entertainments often have deeply embedded in them things that contemporaries would have recognised as messages uh, to the monarch. Um, but to handle these immediate circumstances that I've just described in terms of the interplay of politics and religion in, in in the circumstances of summer of 1578, but to handle these immediate circumstances depending in part on political insight and advice. And advice was itself part of a larger issue of what is called council and how to provide it. So I suppose in all periods there are in public debate and discussion, certain issues that um, figure very large What we see emerging, I suppose, today on the international scene, is the notion of a great conflict between the democracies and the autocracies. Okay, so that comes to be a dominant theme in political discussion and debate about how you deal with that conflict. But in the early modern period, one of the things that was a matter of constant debate was what was counsel? What was advice? How did you deliver it? How did you persuade your ruling monarch to take notice of what you were saying? Um, And partly the problem arose because of the structure of politics itself in most states in this period. The relationship between a ruling monarch and ministers who did the governing resulted in circumstances that were the very opposite of the later conventions of joint cabinet responsibility rather what used to be uh, the theory of joint cabinet responsibility until fairly recently, um, competing, rather, in the earlier period, competing individuals, groups, or what we call affinities, were constantly competing for the ear of the monarch and influence over him and her, or her. Which truth did a monarch hear? What was the truth uh, on any matter? Uh, And these are not matters simply resolved, given all the sorts of papers and the conversations that are flooding into a monarch in this period. And in this context, Elizabeth's practice of going on summer progresses may have been part of a way of of easing the pressure on her, Uh, especially as that unusual thing, here was a queen regnant. And again, we should not underplay that. Here in a patriarchal world was a queen regnant, a woman who ruled, whereas in other polities, like the French one, Salic law, you could never have a woman who who came to the throne. On the other hand, not all her ministers and courtiers would attend her when she went on progress. So the, the pressures to some extent let off. On the other hand, she met numerous individuals, especially amongst the urban elites of cities such as Norwich, uh, that might not otherwise have had direct access to. And we know, for example, that some of the entertainments in the city were put on by some of Norwich's leading merchants. And I'll come back to talk about that in the next lecture. Looked at from this viewpoint, Elizabeth's progresses uh, were one way for the Queen to sustain an independent perspective. More generally, in this period, counsel did not just come in the form of conversations or notes of advice or the equivalent of a modern briefing paper. Um, because of the need to maintain a show of deference, um, uh, the queen, uh, deference to the Queen in this finely tuned hierarchical, patriarchal society. Often counsel was offered in subtle ways that were the very opposite of today's opinion piece or leader in the Daily Mail or The Guardian, or horror of horrors, the inarticulate gibberings of unsociable media. During the course of Elizabeth's reign, two things contributed to augmenting the techniques with which counsel could be delivered. The first of these was the refinement of rhetoric and its widespread teaching in the grammar schools such as that established in the old Carnary building uh, uh, in, uh, in Norwich uh, at the time. And at that time, Norwich managed my Norwich City uh, Council. So that's where this new city school was founded. Indeed, the renewal and further refinement of classical oratory also resurrected one of the original purposes of oratory in classical antiquity, to define the public good and to persuade governors to to act for that good. As we'll see in the second lecture, complex but well understood rhetorical devices made it possible to deliver counsel in the subtle and elusive ways that largely avoided direct confrontation or the possibility of insult while at the same time displaying a decorous deference to their social superiors such as the Queen. Therefore, there is considerable significance in the fact that it was Stephen Limbert, the master of Norwich School, who delivered two of the orations during Elizabeth's stay in the city. To this day, the site of one of these orations outside the great hospital uh, in Bishopsgate is known as Limbert's Porch. here was a situation when uh, the politicians of the city did want to hear an expert. Um, the other way in which uh, the means to deliver counsel was augmented was closely related to the resurrection of rhetoric and the associated refinement of Neo Latin, which I will not go into here. Effectively, the second augmentation added to the pre existing repertoire of Christian symbolism and was responsible for its partial replacement through a massive. Perception of classical learning and its manifestations of both rhetoric and visual imagery, some of which I will show you next week, some of which I will point you to, so you can go and look at around the city because it's still there today. Um these came these elements um, came into England, I think, um, um, from the royal festive entries that came to characterise continental cities, especially those just across the North Sea uh, such as Antwerp. Undoubtedly there was a substantial element of emulation of continental practices in the equivalent offerings of London uh, and elsewhere when they put festivities on uh, for Elizabeth. it's absolutely, it's really large, this pound, by the way. I'm many of these things on the slide, slide, you can't see the size of it. Uh, it it's in the VNA theater Museum. Brazil. Um, undoubtedly, there was a, a substantial element, as I say, of copying what went on on the continent. Uh, and one, one could hardly expect anything less of Norwich, the kingdom's second city. Moreover, there was an obvious channel of transmission in Norwich of those continental practices. For, from 1565, the city had been accepting religious refugees from the Catholic persecution in the Low Countries. And By 1578, there was, and you look at the wait for these figures, around 6,000 so-called strangers uh, matched to an indigenous population of around about 10,000, 6,000 to 10,000. And as we'll see when we look at the proceedings in Norwich in detail, the so-called stranger community did indeed play a large part in the city's festivities during Elizabeth's visit. Moreover, at the point at which Elizabeth entered the city at St. Stephen's Gate, she was greeted by what I assume were Stephen Limbert's boy pupils rigged out in their sister's clothing in order to impersonate classical deities. Um, so if you look at St Stephen's roundabout today, reconstruct, there was some nutty proposal uh, a few years ago, if you go back and look at the columns of the EDP, there was some nutty proposal for rebuilding St. Stephen's Gate in the middle of the roundabout. It didn't get funded for some reason. Anyway, but um, uh, it was de- all decorated and, and set up. And these boys were sort of placed in little alcoves in it uh, in order to represent uh, classical deities. How embarrassing it must have be. You know? um, and then... Um, uh, uh, In the great market, the great market, there was a triumphal arch on which I presume yet more pupils played the role of specific classical female gods. So I think we can um, conclude that Norwich was fully up to speed in providing the Queen, her courtiers and her government ministers with subtle forms of counsel delivered via the latest forms of rhetoric and classical analogy. It may have been play, it may look like play, but it was also work that was going on in that summer. Now, another phenomenon, another phenomenon um, um, to be expected in this period and for which a royal progress offered new opportunities was what was called petitioning. Some of you may know that, uh, I think it was under Tony Blair's government, that. the petitioning process was re- re- reignited, and if you go to the parliamentary website now, you can start a petition to do whatever you want to do. And if you get enough signatures, I've forgotten how many it is. Um, Ten, 10 thousand, right? Ten thousand. That's right. And yeah, thank you very much. Obviously, much better than statistics <laughs> than I am. If you get the right number of people to sign it, so that's a lot of Facebook. Likes you've got to get there, but if you if you do that, then parliamentarians, uh, uh, members of the House of Commons, have to debate it in, in the Great uh, in, in the Great Westminster Hall. um So it's a it's a revival of something that was absolutely fundamental to um, early modern society. Everyone was petitioning everyone about everything all the time. I've got thousands of these documents. You know, as so I grow, with the thought of how many churn through. We're very interested in terms of what goes on. Um, So petitioning arose from an understanding that the monarch exercised a large prerogative of dispensation and provision, that largesse that was being mentioned earlier on, to resolve the ills of her subjects. Um, It it was the realisation of the image of Elizabeth in which she is equipped with the swords of justice and mercy. She uh, effectively, Elizabeth was the court of last resort, more often the resort, uh, a quite early resort, as a way of short-circuiting interminable legal processes. Get the Queen to fix it, and we don't have to spend money on the lawyers. Um, And the right to petition was, as I say, a right of all subjects. Thus, in a speech on behalf of the stranger community in Norwich, in effect, their spokesman petitioned the Queen in 1578 to, to continue to exercise the favour shown them in 1565 when the Duke of Norfolk petitioned um, her on behalf of Norwich to settle 30 stranger families in the city. Well it had turned out to be rather more than that. Um, um, but perhaps uh, um, and, and I think you know there, there's a politic reason to make that pitch at Elizabeth again because as we've said Norfolk, the Duke of Norfolk and his cronies, as it were, beyond be unkind, had been deposed from power. So in this new circumstances, the strangers wanted their position to be reassured, be reassured of their position. But perhaps a more characteristic example of petitioning during the 1578 progress relates not to Norwich, but to Yarmouth. I have to mention this. Okay, I, I know problems, it's, I mean, it's almost as bad as the relationship between Norwich and Ipswich, but in the early modern period, it wasn't Norwich and the Tractor Boys, it was Norwich and the Yarmouth, Yarmouth fishing uh, that were the problem. Um, in 1570, 1570, the port had become embroiled in a dispute with Little Yarmouth, that's the Gorstons, we know it, over the right of the latter to land um, and market fish. And the Burgesses of Yarmouth used the opportunity of Elizabeth's presence in Norwich to petition They presented a petition to her about the inequities that are going on in Galston. And apparently Elizabeth had no desire to try, try the dubious pleasures of the April Strait. Um, and instead, a clutch of privy councillors were sent off to investigate the matter. These included, rather surprisingly, or not surprisingly, the Earl of Leicester, who just happened to be Yarmouth's patron. Um, and the issues were not resolved immediately, but a subsequent order of the Privy Council did indeed restore great Yarmouth's privileges and put those Gaulston boys in their place. Now, a, a, a further social process that was deeply embedded in the wider um, uh, society, but which became a focal activity uh, during progresses was gift exchange and the exercise of royal largesse. Someone pointed out this is giving. Largesse itself derives from feudal theory, which is that when King William comes and imposes in 1066, a feudal system, everything is a gift from a king. And so kings are meant to have, as it were, a little reserve of resource to give gifts as rewards benefits as advantages to people uh, so they've always got people begging at their doors uh, which is one of the reasons why you, they, they increasingly organize their household so no one can get, get at them uh, in order to make these these bids um, and the other thing that was part of this was generally gift exchange now I don't know if any of you've got some Japanese friends or know I've been to Japan but one of the things is that one can often be non-plussed well, the first time it happened to me right, with a Japanese student who presented me with some terribly awkward little box I was meant to unpack in some way or undo, which I've now lost the instructions for. Um, so I haven't put anything useful inside it. But uh she she and, and so Japanese are much given to giving presents all the time. Um, and another visiting Japanese uh, professor gave me a consumer Um, So various societies still retain this business of gift exchange and you have to measure the gift against the status and one thing like this. And a great deal of this gift giving goes on during uh, the Elizabethan progresses. Now I'm not gonna say much more about that because in a sense, this is part of performance of the acting out of um, relationships uh, during the course of progress. So I'll say somewhat about that in the um, second lecture. But therefore, if we stand back um, and um, ask when Elizabeth traveled into East Anglia during the summer of 1578, to what extent was she traveling into the unknown? No doubt she saw new sites, met people uh, she would otherwise have never met. But in other respects, she was not traveling into the completely Unknown. Many, as, I, as I've tried to suggest here, many of the local dignitaries she encountered, uh, she already knew as courtiers or ministers. She often, she was meeting the Bacons, for example. Sir so Nicholas, although we don't have documentation for this, but he almost certainly presented his three sons to Elizabeth during the progress. Um, uh, so there are a lot of faces that she does see uh, because she's been seeing them around court uh, earlier on. Other things were also familiar in general, if not in their social particularities. These included both direct and indirect counsel on both the larger policy issues of the moment and the best resolution of specific issues that arose from the localities she visited, as with the Gorston boys being put down by Yarmouth. And this was monarchical business in its usual manifestations, but in novel localities. What was far less certain was the ultimate resolution of the larger and intertwined religious and political issues that Elizabeth and her entourage encountered on their travels. To venture into East Anglia was to engage with a region in which the contention between Catholicism and Protestantism and between the different flavors of Protestantism, which I have not gone into, but there's a great deal of rowing between different varieties of Protestantism. Um, uh, The so-called church in England in this period is is like a bunch of cats in a bag, all fighting one another. Um, uh, And these matters were by no means being resolved one way or another. So these things are still in suspension in some ways. And as we've seen, there were those forward Protestants, largely within the court, but with local clients, who endeavoured to use the progress of 1578 as a means of resolving the power struggle in East Anglia in their favour. From this perspective, I think the discovery of the statue of the Virgin in the barn at Euston begins to look like a put-up job designed to shape the outcome of the progress as a whole and to force Elizabeth's hand in her treatment of Catholics as a whole in the region and beyond. This was advisory council become force majeure, compulsion in practice. But when all these weighty factors are taken into consideration, clearly this was not a government that went into suspension during an entire summer or whose head of government took a couple of holidays abroad while serious issues required mm-hmm. resolving at home. Thank you.